Hi, I'm Jill Schlesinger, and today on Better Off, we've got Kathy O'Neill, author of Weapons of Math Destruction. I'm not trying to say that I should be in charge of ethics. I'm saying we need to have an ethical conversation separate from an algorithm, and we can't just say this algorithm is inherently fair and objective. It's simply not. It is subjective, and we need to understand the subjectivity. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Today on the program, I am so psyched. I have been following this woman's career for a while. Her name is Kathy O'Neill. She is a mathematician, and she wrote a book uh, released last year called Weapons of Math Destruction. Get it? Math, not mass. She is super smart, you know, PhD in math from Harvard. Uh, She worked in academia. She then went to Wall Street and became completely disillusioned with how math was being applied to various things, including the financial sector, but beyond that as well. And what has been so fascinating to me is to read her work. She's got a blog called Math Babe. Gotta love that. She's able to explain a lot of wonky math stuff in a way that we can all understand. So, uh, by the way, the book was nominated for a 2016 National Book Award, lots of different awards. But um, it's out in paperback, a perfect opportunity for you to purchase that and a perfect opportunity for you to learn how math, for all of its wonderment, can be misapplied and can actually lead to unintended and bad consequences for us. Because of my nascent love affair with Kathy, uh, we're foregoing the call after this program. But don't worry, we'll drop another one on Tuesday. So keep letting us know if you've got a question. Just send us an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Here's my interview with Kathy O'Neill. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Welcome, Kathy O'Neill. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, Kathy, we start the show every single time with one very important question. Okay, go for it. What is the best financial decision or career decision or money decision that you've ever made in your life? Taking all my money out of the stock market. Really? When did you do that? I mean, not at the worst time. Not at the worst time, but not at a great time, but it just freed me. I just don't think about it anymore. So you're not invested right now at no, all? not Because why? It just freaked you out too much? It distracted me, to be honest. Wow. And the truth is, like, I I mean, maybe I'm bragging here, but like... Yeah, I, you should. My job is to think. And if I spend my time worrying about the market, I'm not making money thinking. And like, I actually make more money thinking than I would by investing. It's not like I have a lot of money, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. we'll, we'll, do your, we'll look at your balance sheet after. All right, I like that idea because I do like the idea that it can drive you crazy. It can drive you crazy. I'll tell you what, like I've spent a lot of time with very poor people and with very rich people. And the people who worry the most about money are people at the extremes. The people who are in the middle who are like, I have enough money not to worry about it, but I don't have enough money to worry about it. There was like an interesting survey about money and happiness. And I think that there was like a sweet spot where they said sort of like 75000 to to $100,000 a year, a year in income was like where they found the happiest people. Because, again, I've got my shelter. I've got this. I don't have so much money where I have to really start like freaking out because I'm not going to save a ton of money for my kids college. And I'm going to just plod along and do my job. And but, you know, that goes against my mother's theory, which is richer, poor, it's nice to have money. 
Dude, I, I'm probably going to regret this. I'm probably I'm probably going to be like, I'm such an idiot. The market is so high. I'm actually probably already feel that way, but instead I just feel like I don't even have to worry about it. I love that answer. That's a first. I like that. This is going to be great. So I was teasing myself as I was reading through this, so excited, folding pages down, and I'm reading it, and my girlfriend says to me, honey, you have every single page folded down. It really down. does almost look that way. It's a little scary. It's so extremely I, flattering. So it, it may be flattering, but it's not going to be helpful for this interview. <laughs> so you can't go through every single point. Kathy O'Neill, uh, New York Times bestseller, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. So, Kathy, you are a data scientist. You're a math nerd, yeah, right? Yeah, I am, sure. Why'd you write this book? Well, I wrote the book because after my experiences as a quant in finance, because I worked at a hedge fund with Larry Summers, like during the crisis, um, I left finance sort of disgusted the way, with the way that mathematics was being used and abused. You remember the mortgage-backed securities and the AAA ratings? Well, those AAA ratings were a mathematical lie. Mm. And it really upset me that mathematics was be the sort of trust in mathematics was being abused, and so many people trusted those AAA ratings. They and internationally, people invested in them, um, and it really screwed up the economy because of an underlying mathematical lie. And I know that's not the whole story. There's a lot of corruption going on. A lot of people should have gone to jail. They didn't, but there was at its heart this sort of dishonesty, and it made me realize that mathematical algorithms, when they are being misrepresented can really have devastating consequences. Let's back up a second because, okay, I'm a little bit of a math nerd. Oh, awesome. So let's go back for the people who are absolutely freaked out by the word math right now who are listening. And let's talk about what is an algorithm and how they can process that. And what's the difference between a good algorithm and a bad one? I'm glad we're doing that because like one of my most important points is like you don't need to be a math nerd to understand the kind of corruption and failure I'm talking about. So an algorithm for me is something we actually do in our heads on a daily basis. It's using sort of past information, past data to predict something. So for example, um, I like to use the following um, example. Look, I make dinner for my family. I have three sons and a husband. And I like to make a dinner that would be successful, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so what is the information I have? Well, how did past dinners go? What did people eat? What did people not eat? How well cooked should this be if I want to get people to eat it, et cetera, like that. So the the data coming in is all the past dinners, but also the actual ingredients I have in my kitchen. And I should say that I don't include all the ingredients. And this is already part of how I'm embedding my agenda mm-hmm. into that model. So I don't include Robin noodles. That my my seventeen year old loves ramen noodles, but I'm like that's not really food to me, right? <laughs> I don't consider Jello for the most dinners, right? I'm not saying there will be no dinner where I'd have Jello, but on an average night, I'm like, no, that's not part of mm-hmm. dinner. So I curate my data, and this is one of the most important things that people always curate the data. They decide what's relevant. Mm-hmm. And that's a very subjective choice. And then I make the dinner, blah, blah, blah. I sit down with my family. We eat. Then afterwards, I look at the dinner and I say, was this successful or not? You get the feedback probably right. in real time. Yes. Except the very important point is that I'm in charge. So I get to decide what success looks like. Uh. So I define success to be my kids ate enough and they ate their vegetables. Okay. Okay. Jose, you're that kind of mother. Because I'm that kind of bitchy mother. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I just, the point being that if my eight-year-old were in charge, the definition of success would be, did I get to eat Nutella? Uh, 
<laughs> because that's all he cares about, literally. <laughs> so the point I'm trying to make, though, is that the definition of success matters crucially because I will make the next meal depending on whether this meal was successful. Mm-hmm. I'll make the next meal like this meal in some way, right? And if I had chosen the Nutella definition of success, it would be a very different sequence of meals. Mm-hmm. But I'm in charge. And you get to make that determination. You get to filter what comes back at you in terms of the feedback. Exactly. I get to decide what's important, what's not, what a failure looks like, how much to penalize myself for a failure, et cetera. So going back to finance, the AAA-rated mortgage-backed security credit ratings, they decided what kind of data to use. They didn't have any of the relevant data, so they just used old data that looked good. It was the wrong thing to do, but their definition of success wasn't that AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities never defaulted, their definition of success was they got more market share. They got paid. Right. We got paid by the client. They sold more of this stuff. It's highly unlikely that this whole series of events would be... I don't even know if they thought about the downside when they were doing it. I don't think they did. I think they literally were just so greedy Mm. and dishonest Mm. that they were like, oh, well, it's working as long as the machine keeps turning. The thing that freaked me out about that period of time as someone who kind of digs statistics and like old time options traders that I would talk to people on Wall Street. So, you know, I was still managing money then. And I would talk to some people I knew that were like institutional people. And I would say things like, but I don't understand and fill in the blank. It would just be a normal question. Like, well, what happens if, well, that's not going to happen. It's never happened before. But, But a lot of things that have never happened before happen. So have you modeled that? And they would... I think maybe they were more of the salespeople or the trader types who would say, but the guys in the the quants tell us everything's fine. So they relied on math to make themselves feel better. Mm -hmm. But did they ever ask those questions or was it were they so blinded by the money? I think it's a little of both. But I'll say as one of those quants, because that's what I did. Like I asked stupid questions, too. And the other quants were like, don't ask stupid questions. Oh, really? But you're absolutely right. And I think that's a very important point, which is that a lot of this belief system, which it really was a belief system, was propped up by the underlying authority of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've left finance thinking. That's that's nasty. Like, I'm a, I'm a believer in mathematics. Mathematics is powerful and beautiful and true. This isn't mathematics. This is something else. This is marketing or something along those lines. And it is actually obscuring truth rather than clarifying. Tell me a, an example of a good algorithm that's like, oh, my God, that works. Be- that's- tell me the beauty of math. Get people psyched about an <laughs> algorithm that works that you think is like, oh, man, that's awesome. I think my favorite use of math and prediction is probably from sports. I mean, I just think it's really cool to come up with different ways of measuring sports um, players and like how, how are they valuable to the team? How do they how do they contribute to a win? Because. It's important to know that there's very specialized. Sports is very specialized in a few ways. First of all, it's very clear what you're going for, and that's winning. Remember we were talking about, like, the definition of success for cooking? Right. In this realm, it's pretty clear what you're going for. You want your team to win. And maybe maybe you're – it's actually you should think you wanted to win the World Series if you're in baseball instead of winning a specific game. But it's pretty much the same thing on Mm -hmm. a daily basis. The second thing that's really special about sports, besides that it's really fun and entertaining, is that you get feedback. And this is something, after I left finance and went to data science, I saw a really problematic um, series of algorithms that don't get this critical feedback. In other words, in sports, if you have underestimated the potential of a player and you don't pick them up on your team and it goes to another team, then you'll see you made a mistake. 
Right, because that feedback is continuing whether or not that person's with you or not. And in baseball, you have 162 games, so it's yes. even better than football, which is 16 games. Right, right. Baseball is obviously my favorite sport. So a good algorithm, a good use of algorithms, sports. Yes. Now let's talk Here's about... Here's another one. Yeah. Amazon. Amazon oh, right. does an amazing, amazing job. And again, it's about a feedback loop, right? Huge numbers, right? And you get that information constantly. Constantly. And they say, oh, you're the type of person who might like baby rattles, you know, and they'll show me they'll show me a product and I'm like, I don't want that. And they'll show not just to me, but to people like me. And it doesn't work. And guess what the machine does? It says, that didn't work. Let's not do that anymore. And so instead they show me stuff that I actually want. And by the way, I'm not saying like Amazon's my favorite company because I'm actually really scared of Amazon taking over the world and having an enormous amount of power. But I do want to say they do big data really well. What about Netflix? Netflix, I like. That's pretty interesting, right? It's interesting. I love the technical details of recommendation engines. It's really fun. I mean, it's not perfect because think about it. Like some populations watch way more um, movies and they rate more movies. And that information means because they are over represented that means like but recommendation engine is going to work a lot better for them than for me and when i say them i'm talking about my teenage sons of course so the recommendation engine is tilted towards people who use it more but that kind of makes sense yeah i guess but it means that they know me less and by the way i don't hate algorithms i worry about algorithms that are potentially very harmful and the thing you can say about netflix is the worst harm that can come to you is that you watch a movie you don't like it's just not that big a deal right so let's talk about the scary ones and you start the book um with a few of them so i i love this part where you say there will always be mistakes because models are by their very nature simplifications no model can include all of the real world's complexity or the nuance of human communication to create a model then we make choices about what's important enough to include simplifying the world into a toy version that can be easily understood and from which we can infer important facts and actions now what struck me about that is when you're trying to model something with variables that aren't exactly measurable, right? The qualitative, not the quantitative. That seems to me where you run into some of the biggest problems. So can you talk a little bit about the teacher evaluations, which is the one that just jumps out and is horrifying to me? It is horrifying. And by the way, it's still being used. Yeah, I know. So the idea is hold teachers accountable. Well, if you're going to hold teachers accountable, if you're going to get rid of bad teachers, you're going to have to define which teachers are bad. So if you think about it, like what makes a teacher a good teacher? And the answer that they came up with was, let's just look at test scores. Mm. Now, you and I both know that a good teacher isn't defined by their test scores. It's defined by whether they inspire or whether they include everyone or or making sure they don't shame anyone. There's all sorts of ways you could be a good or a bad teacher. Mm. Test scores is the only information they really take in about a given teacher. Is that because it's the only quantitative data that you can grab? Is that why they... It's the easiest. It's easiest. I think it's just... Literally, like, let's close our eyes and hope this works type mm, of stuff. Mm. Um, and it doesn't work because what they've come up with is almost a random number generator. For each student in a person's class, so if you have 30 students, you have 30 kids, each of them comes in at the beginning of your fourth grade year with an expected end of year score okay. on their standardized tests. It's based partly on their end of third year, third grade score. Also, which class they're in, which teacher they have, which school they're in, which school system they're in, how many kids are in the class, how many kids qualify for a free school lunch, which is a proxy for poverty. Mm -hmm. Complicated formula, 
but essentially what they're expected to get at the end of the year. And it's not a very good model. It's not very accurate. Imagine you trying to figure out, just knowing what a kid got at the end of the school year and looking around the school, like trying to figure out what they're going to get at the end of next year. In a year, that's hard to predict. Mm -hmm. And and indeed, it's pretty uncertain. And then they compare for your 30 students. They all come up with the expected score. They, They compare it with the actual scores your kids get. So if somebody was expected to get a 50, but they got a 60, you would give, give credit for that. So you get credit or you're penalized for the difference between their actual and expected scores. So if you raised everyone's score 10 points above expected, then you would obviously be a magnificent teacher. That's typically not what happens. But also very importantly, the idea is that only you, you and only you are responsible for the difference between these two numbers. But actually these two numbers are extremely uncertain. You would think your actual score of, a, of an actual kid would be just a number. But think about it. If you took it on a different day or if you got less sleep that day or if it was a hot day and you didn't have air conditioning or you did have air conditioning, lots of different variables or you had it after lunch and you didn't eat lunch, you know, lots of variables could just change the actual score a kid gets in a given test. Mm-hmm. Or the test itself could be harder that year than expected, mm-hmm. which happens all the time. Hmm. So you have two numbers. You're taking the difference. They're both uncertain. The difference is actually more uncertain. And the end result is that teachers are being scored on sort of the average of 30 very random numbers. And that means that the teacher scores themselves are almost random. And 30 is nothing. I mean, it's it's a teeny tiny small sample, right? Very small sample. It'd it'd be one thing if you could ask teachers to teach for a thousand years and each year they had a thousand students. Right. That would be a very different. Right. It almost would be better if you could do it like an online course because there'd be so many more people taking that. Yes. There is a story in the book that you tell of one New York City school teacher where one year I think it was like a six and the other was 90 or something. 96. What? I know. And he didn't change the way he taught. I mean, his conclusion, which was appropriate, was this system doesn't make any sense. He was allowed to make that because he did. He already had tenure and this wasn't about getting fired. Whereas Sarah Wasaki, who I profiled at the beginning of the book, did get fired. She got fired based on her overall teacher assessment, 50% of which was her value-added model score. This is what I've been describing, the Mm -hmm. value-added model, which was extremely bad. And she thought about it and she said, you know, a lot of the kids that, that were in my fourth grade class had gotten really high scores at the end of third grade but came in and didn't know how to read or write. Okay, that's very strange, right? Mm-hmm. And it was under Michelle Ree, a superintendent in Washington, D.C. The now disgraced. Yes, I would say. She not only fired people like Sarah for getting bad scores, she also gave bonuses for really good scores. So people fudge their numbers. I mean, there are certainly incentives. Mm-hmm. And the school that those kids came from, they had an unusual number of erasures, but nobody really investigated. So we had, at least Sarah had plenty of evidence to suspect that her score was being artificially deflated by previous cheating. Hmm. Because think about it. If teachers had cheated on those tests, they came in with inflated expected scores, and Sarah couldn't possibly make up the difference, Mm -hmm. right? She tried to appeal her score, but she was told that the process was fair based on it being a mathematical algorithm. But they didn't open that up. It wasn't a transparent model. It wasn't at all transparent. And that's... I'm going to just just come to the definition for me of mm-hmm. a weapon of math destruction, mm-hmm. which is a powerful, highly scaled, secret and destructive algorithm. Mm. And that's what this value-added model became, right? It was powerful. It was being used to fire people in an entire school system. And it's actually being used, it was at the time at least, being used in more than half of the states, usually in urban school districts. It is secret. Nobody understands it, including 
by the way, most of the people in the school systems themselves who were being made in these little little tiny like think tanky places and sold to the school systems um, with a license, like a license saying, saying like, you'll never see this formula. So even the superintendent of schools couldn't understand the formula. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. I'll get back to my interview with Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, in a second. But, man, that is frightening stuff. Powerful, highly scaled, and secret. That's what makes an algorithm scary. Now, compare that with our sponsor, Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Betterment's all about transparency. Yeah, they use math, of course. Like, But this is great. This is math and technology that helps make investing easier for you. Betterment really wants to help you manage your wealth. And they think that the experience should not be confusing or frustrating. It should be easy and enjoyable. That fees should be low and transparent, especially when compared to traditional financial services. Frankly, the most important part of Betterment is the ability to use technology for the good, for your own good. As your personal investment manager, Betterment always has your back. They don't get commissions for recommending funds. They don't have funds of their own. They do what they believe is right for you. Yes, all investing involves risk. You know that. Better off listeners, you can get up to six months managed for free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash better off. Betterment, rethink what your money can do. And now back to my interview with Kathy O'Neill. And if you think that, you know, weapons of mass destruction are not pertinent to your life, not it's not just your shopping and it's not just your teaching, but we're also talking about, and in the book you go into this, policing and incarceration. So mm-hmm. talk about that because that to me is where like, oh my God, the real life, I mean, it's terrible this woman lost her job. The next bad iteration of this yeah. really feels pretty awful to me. This is a huge, huge thing. And most, mostly, if you read about it in the media, you'll see it touted as like scientific policing. Right. Right. Like and, targeted. Yes. And this, again, for me, is like an abuse of the authority of mathematics. Like we should trust math. We shouldn't trust mathematical algorithms because, again, you curate the data and you, you define success. Um, so the first sort of realm of algorithms being used in the justice system are predictive policing algorithms. And they basically say, look at the sort of location of previous arrests. um, And then they say, let's predict the next crime based on the location of previous arrests. The difference between where crimes happen and where arrests happen is very, very large. Mm -hmm. It's Most people don't really think about this, but most crimes don't lead to arrests, especially drug crimes. Right. But in some places, they really do, much more often anyway. So what, what's happened is because of the data, the arrests are happening where we've been doing broken windows policing, where we've been sort of putting lots and lots of police in, um, in poor minority neighborhoods. And we are finding those low-level crimes because that was the point of broken windows policing under Bloomberg and stop and frisk. That was the point of it. So the data will tell us, go back there. That's where the crimes are occurring. The thought experiment I like to do around this, which I think you'll enjoy, is what if after the crisis, cops were sent down to Wall Street to arrest all the bankers? And because, you know, there is where the crime is. Mm -hmm. If they had done that, then the data we have would be very different. 
it would say, oh, go back to Wall Street. That's where the crime is. That's let's go look for crime over there. Um, it's not what we ch- just chose to do as a, as a society. Um, but that sort of brings up the, the real point, which is that we are just as much predicting our society as we are predicting crime. I mean, I kind of liked it more when we were talking about baseball. I got to tell you, <laughs> this is uh, this is definitely sobering. Is there a way to build a better algorithm to do what they're trying to do? Could you could you create such a algorithm for either teachers or policing that you think is a fairer way to try to do what they're trying to do? So with teachers, I don't know how to do it, but I will tell you what I would how I would test anything. If I were asked to build something, I wouldn't accept what I've built until it agrees closely with a qualitative assessment of teachers that we can agree on. So the whole sort of the genesis of the the fast teacher ability assessments was that, yes, we, we could assess teachers qualitatively, but it's very expensive mm-hmm. and it doesn't scale. Well, my argument would be we have to make sure that whatever we come up with agrees with that qualitative assessment before we try scaling it. As far as the policing thing goes, it's really tricky because what big data models do is they propagate the past. They repeat patterns because that's what algorithms are good at. They're picking up historical patterns and repeating them. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to repeat our past policing patterns or do we want to really change the way we do policing? My feeling personally is we would probably want to rethink it. And if we rethink it, then the data we get out of it will look very different. Mm. Now, if we really changed policing and we kept it different, then an algorithm built on that kind of data would look different. And maybe that would be a good way to go. But I think right now the data is so painfully biased against poor minority neighborhoods that I don't know how to fix that. Also in the book, you talk about using algorithms and how they're incorporated with things that we encounter every day in the financial world, like your credit score. Yep as well as uh, maybe insurance sales. So let me just start with the the credit score because people really do get wrapped around the axle about their credit scores. And I think that, you know, when I first entered the financial planning business, no one talked about a credit score. Like when you got a mortgage, someone talked a tiny bit about credit, but mostly you're walking into your banker and saying, here's how much money I made. Here's my tax returns. What do I get? Yeah. So talk about the evolution of how algorithms have changed the credit system right now. Great. I mean, and this is such a sobering story, actually. So it was actually part of the women's lib movement that they they would notice, especially divorced women, had a lot of trouble getting any credit whatsoever from their, their local banker. Because as you say, the bankers would look you up and down, ask you for papers. If all you could provide was stuff that happened when you were married... Like bankers just didn't give it credit to women for that. And that was a, a problem. And this is sort of around the same time as the civil rights movement. So lawmakers actually, policymakers actually responded to this and said, you know what? It should not be legal to base creditworthiness on a gender. And then at the end, they put in race either. It really upended the loan business for small bankers. And they were like, what? How are we going to figure out who's creditworthy? In response to this, FICO, the FICO score was born. People think of this as like an awful thing, but actually FICO scores, they were created in response to this law as a way of sort of letting banks continue with the process of loans. 
saying like, these are by construction legal. They do not use race. They do not use gender. And you can use them to decide who to give a loan to. And of course, bankers loved it because it was much easier for them. And it allowed them to scale their loans actually much, much higher. And that's one of the reasons we've seen so many more credit cards because FICO scores made it so much easier for everyone to think about loaning to each other. It was very sanitary. It was like Mm -hmm. sanitize the whole process. By the way, so it made me feel a little bit better reading the book about Fair Isaac as like just as an organization, even though I think that credit scores are just overblown in terms of like what they've come to mean. Absolutely. I would argue that the credit scores as a way of deciding who's credit worthy are actually pretty good because they're based on, let's recall, they're based on like your actual ability to pay your electricity bill. Your history. Your history of paying your bills, which I think everyone would agree with is a fair measure. What's wrong with it is that they're being used to decide whether you can perform at a job. Right. Get an apartment. Get an apartment or even have a date. And the reason, of course, that's so bad is because if you've lost your job and then you've been unemployed for a while, your credit score is inevitably beginning to go down. So it, it makes it harder to get that job. You're starting to see a pattern. The people who are unlucky become more unlucky. The people who are lucky get luckier. And that is the pattern I started to see, which is why I wanted to write the book. Because on the one hand, it's creating inequality mm-hmm. because these forces are happening. At, and we'll talk about insurance and even politics. It's happening to everyone all the time. But people like me, the data scientists living in New York, the white, highly educated nerds, we were benefiting from the system. Right. Almost entirely. But that's not the world that you were surrounded by in terms of the other math nerds, right? I mean, not generally, like, they don't come in the shapes and sizes that we come in, right? (laughs) I would say that most of my colleagues, you know, even in mathematics, are more of a libertarian bent. But even so, like, I've had conversations with libertarians about this stuff. And I just recently wrote an essay for Cato Unbound. Oh, my God. And, you know, I don't find that they disagree with me. They might disagree with, like, what the ethics are that we should have. But they don't disagree with me that there are ethics embedded in algorithms. And that's actually my most important point. I'm not trying to say that I should be in charge of ethics. I'm just, I'm very progressive. I'm not representative, right? I'm saying we need to have an ethical conversation separate from an algorithm. And we can't just say this algorithm is inherently fair and objective. It's simply not. It is subjective. And we need to understand the subjectivity. Tell me about insurance, because we, by the way, get a gazillion questions about insurance on the program here. People call in and they've got like all these things. And I find insurance to be a very complicated topic in general. And usually when I get an insurance salesman and try to go head to head with him or her about it, they will immediately default to the same sort of, but the quants say this or the actuaries say this. And and so insurance, which is based quite a bit on math and statistics and longevity and all that, seems to me should be the fairest place to be able to determine outcomes with an algorithm, but it's not. It really depends on which kind of insurance it is. And like, I think the easiest case to make that insurance and big data is really essentially incompatible is health insurance. We have no idea what's going on with health insurance in this country. So let me scare you. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Everyone prepare to hang on. (laughs) So the underlying concept of insurance is pretty simple. We're a village. Let's just say we have a a thousand person village, right? When people get sick, they go to the doctor and they spend their entire life savings getting well. And they're broke afterwards. So their life is ruined. And it's an awful tragedy for those people. 
I mean, we keep seeing this happen. And, and eventually someone comes up with a smart idea. They say, let's pool our resources. Let's all like once a month put in a, an affordable amount of money into this big urn. And someone is going to get paid a little bit to protect the urn, right? And then when somebody gets sick, they can take money out of the urn to pay for their insurance. Okay. To pay for their doctors. Mm-hmm. And they won't end up like a defeated, broken person. Right. Okay. That is insurance. It's pooled risk. Right. Pooled Just risk. Put it all together. We're in it together. The idea being put in an affordable amount uh, amount of money every month instead of having an unaffordable amount of money expected you of at a specific terrible time. Right. Now introduce big data. What does big data do? Big data allows us to profile and segregate and silo every single person based on their risk. Mm-hmm. So somebody who's pretty sick or about to be sick is going to be charged way more than somebody who seems like they're not sick at all and they're not going to get sick. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of things that are totally unpredictable, like breaking your leg. Um, But there's other things that are very, very predictable. Right. We know, like, that's why when you fill out an insurance questionnaire, they're going to ask you about, you know, is is there cancer in your family? Are your parents alive? If they died, when did they die? And how old were they? And And by the way, I should say that, like, those algorithms, those AI, really, that's learning about our future health risks could be invaluable tools for our doctors. Mm. If our doctors see what we're we're at risk of and help us prevent those illnesses. Mm -hmm. But in the hands of insurance companies, what do they do? They just silo you off, say you're in a high risk pool, you're in a low risk pool. Oh, good news, low risk people. And they always frame it as good news. Always. Great news. Good news. Your premiums have just gone down. In the world of market competition among insurance companies, it's simple. What they're trying to do is get rid of all the sick people and lower the premiums as much as possible on the healthy people, which mm-hmm. is to say get only only really, really healthy people. And the asymptotic limit of this, as a nerd, I have to say that every I now and then. I love that word. Is insurance for people who don't need it and no insurance for people who need it. Mm. We have defeated the purpose of pooled risk if we get rid of everybody who's risky. I should mention that Obamacare's rule that you can't charge more for a pre-existing condition goes goes a long way to helping slow this down, but it doesn't cover future conditions. Mm-hmm. And finally, I'll say that we hear all the time, Mount Sinai, I think, had a Bloomberg article about using consuming behavior to give you risk scores. So this is more like, who's going to get diabetes? Diabetes is expensive. Mm-hmm. And the idea there was, we're going to help people not get diabetes. Obviously a good idea. But again, insurance companies would glom onto that very, very quickly to figure out who do we not want to cover. I'm so like sobered and uptight right now. Can you make me feel better, Kathy? I mean, I think this is solvable. It is. It is solvable. You have let's to... solve it. Let's do it right <laughs> Universal now. Universal healthcare would solve it. Okay, but let's talk about... You know, you are one woman. You um, have a new company, by the way, called Orca. You go to O'NeillRisk.com, and we're going to link to all of Kathy's stuff. But what is it that we should be doing to raise awareness around this? Someone's listening to this, and they're freaking out. What can we do to, besides, oh, by the way, buy the book, Weapons of Math Destruction. We will link to it. What should we be doing? The very, very first thing we need to do, and why I wrote the book, is to stop trusting big data or AI. Stop trusting it. 
And I think there's lots of things. I started this project six years ago. I think there's plenty of evidence nowadays that we shouldn't necessarily trust, you know, facial recognition to understand white people as much as black people. Like there's all sorts of like anecdotal evidence that this stuff doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? It doesn't work very well even when we can't see the evidence, right? When it's business to business algorithms, like hiring algorithms, they rule out people who are perfectly qualified for jobs unfairly. Like, let's check. So the first thing is don't trust them. Like, don't be a, a teacher being assessed by a score or, for that matter, any kind of employee being assessed by a score saying, oh, sorry, you scored badly. Well, I hate that. I hate that stuff. I hate the whole idea of trying to quantify performance in that way. Mm-hmm. I think it's gone to, like, an extreme ridiculous place. Well, I agree. And I think anytime someone is being assessed, they should demand to understand how how it works. Mm -hmm. And if there's no explanation, that's not good enough. Yeah, and that's not fair. It's not fair. Mm. It's not fair. And it's probably biased. And it's probably biased against the usual suspects. I should mention that in Houston, six of the teachers who got fired by this value added model score just got a judge to agree that their 14th Amendment due process rights had been violated. Oh, I love that. So there is a little bit of traction on on this question of like how much do we have the right to know and that is really what i'm trying to get at it's a political fight right i'm not asking people to learn how to code and to understand all this software because frankly you won't be able to the software is secret right what i am asking for people to do is stop trusting stuff blindly and start asking questions and demanding answers and the kinds of questions i want to ask is want people to ask is show me this is fair Show me this works. Show me it doesn't discriminate. Show me it's legal. Prove it to me. Because that's what science is. Science is skepticism. Like, give me the evidence. You're telling me this objectively decides who's a good worker? Why? What's your evidence? And don't be afraid to ask that question why. I think that that's so important. I think that we will often, whether it's a financial transaction or just a thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about science or math is that it's called a proof for a reason. You're putting out an an idea. You're putting Mm -hmm. out a hypothesis. And now you're going through and saying, what's the proof? And it's not like you're going to get published if it doesn't come out the way you think you thought it would. But asking the questions is so important. I always say that to people about financial advisors and money managers or hedge funds, you're allowed to ask questions. Right. It's like the anti-Madoff thing. You know, we had Diana Henriquez was on the show talking about Madoff. And she was amazing. Nobody asked him a question. Nobody. And it was opaque and it was this. But like you are entitled to ask questions. So you you should ask questions. And you should. When I first learned about the value added model for teachers, it's because my friend is a principal of a school in Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn. She said, Kathy, my teachers are being scored by this system. I don't understand. And I was like, well, ask ask for an explanation. She was like, well, I did ask. And they told me it's math. You wouldn't understand it. Oh. And I was like, keep asking. And she got that answer three times. And I feel like if that's what your answer is, it's a red flag. That means math has been weaponized. Mm. Don't accept weaponized mathematics. So, Kathy, we started the program with our big question, which was your best financial decision. Now you got to tell us what's the worst one that you've made. Probably taking my money out of the market. <laughs> it's like uh, that. My my greatest strength is my really is my biggest problem. Or so, right. I don't think in these terms. I mean, I've I'm a, I'm lucky enough, as I said, to like live in that happy middle where I'm like I'll never I'm not worried about having too much money, but I don't have to worry about money, and I'm so grateful for that. Kathy O'Neill, author of Weapons of Math Destruction, available in paperback. We'll link to it on our show notes. Thank you so much for joining. Us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks again to Kathy O'Neill. Go get her book, Weapons of Math Destruction. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag BetterOff. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. That's askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week. Hold up. 